Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Seven p.m. came around on Saturday evening, the 22nd of August, 1987. Andrew Hunter picked up the phone in his home and called the police. He thought his 30-year-old wife, Linda, may have gone missing. Andrew and Linda lived in the small seaside commuter town of Carnoustie, 11 miles east of Dundee. Andrew told the 999 operator that he hadn't seen Linda or their dog Shep since she left their home the previous morning in Linda's Vauxhall Cavalier to go to her parents' place in Glenrothes, Fife. In the 36 hours since he had seen Linda, Andrew had been busy. He was a little worried when she didn't come home that evening, but he assumed she was with her parents so he didn't think too much about it. But by the time he made the call to police, he had found out that she had never gone to her parents at all. Andrew explained to police that Linda had left in a bad mood and taken clothes with her. My name's Benjamin Fitton from They Walk Among Us. Welcome to Murder Town, the podcast. Following each episode of Crime and Investigation's brand new true crime TV series, we'll explore another case right here. According to Andrew, the previous morning, the last time he saw her, had begun with the couple walking in no rush. They both had the day off from their jobs as social workers in Dundee. Andrew had an appointment later in the day with a supervisor to hand in an essay for his studies, but beside that, they could take their time. It was a good thing they had the day off too, as Linda had woken with morning sickness. She was six weeks pregnant and had been struggling with the nausea. Just after 10am, Andrew and Linda went to the local pharmacy to see if there was anything she could take, but the pharmacist suggested she visit her doctor just to check in. At the clinic, Linda was told to call back to speak with the doctor and make an appointment for later in the day. According to Andrew, as the couple headed home, Linda was in a bit of a mood. She was upset that it was their day off and he still planned to go out that night with work friends instead of spending time with her, and that morning, with her still feeling rather unwell, she had hoped he would change his mind. She had phoned her younger sister Sandra the week before, telling her about the baby and how upset she was at Andrew for planning the night out. Sandra decided she would come to Carnoustie and stay with Linda that night to keep her company. So that morning, after going to the pharmacy, Linda came down the stairs around 11am with a bag packed including her night shift clothing for the following night. She said she was going to visit her parents in Fife 
and would tell them the news about the baby. With the couple only having one car, Andrew told police he offered to drive her to Fife and then take the car himself, but she refused. He then asked if she would wait for him. He would get a lift into Dundee as he had things to do and he could go see his supervisor. But before he had a chance to gather his things, Linda and Shep were gone. She had left without him. Shortly after, he phoned his supervisor and said he would be late for their appointment as he was forced to get the bus. Later that day, Sandra arrived at the house for a planned visit. By that time, Andrew was back from town and had explained that Linda had gone to Fife. She had taken clothes, but it may have been in anger, and so he was sure she would be home soon, suggesting they sit and chat in the garden for a while. Andrew and Linda had met four years earlier in 1984, when they both lived in Brotty Ferry, East Dundee. Andrew and his first wife Christine had moved with their young son into a house across the road from Linda and her live-in partner Ian, a college lecturer 15 years her senior. Christine, who was 11 years older than Andrew, had met him through the Salvation Army in Paisley, Andrew's hometown. They were both Salvationists and Andrew had become heavily involved in social work for the Salvation Army. Although only ever doing volunteer work, he wasn't qualified. He began his studies part-time while working at the Ann Street Children's Home in Dundee, where he managed to get a job. Andrew had been brought up by his aunt. His mother had died when he was a baby, with his father abandoning him soon after. The Salvation Army would become a caring and nurturing community for him. Linda, who had been a Samaritan for years, was a qualified social worker, so when her partner Ian introduced her to their new neighbour Andrew, she offered to help him with his studies. Linda and Andrew became close friends and bonded over their passion for helping the disadvantaged, but it didn't take long for their friendship to become a love affair that would see both of their other relationships come to an end. She was what the rest of the world would call a good Samaritan, but to her friends and family, this was just who she was. She had devoted her entire life to helping others and had lived in cities across Britain, volunteering to help people with disabilities. She had also spent time in Singapore before returning to Scotland when her father became unwell. Social work was a growing profession in Scotland in the late 1980s. The need for social support was unprecedented. Great Britain was right in the very centre of a political movement which, lasting 15 years, focused on the belief that people should take individual responsibility for the care of themselves and their families, rather than relying upon state support. This led to government funding cuts in healthcare, education, housing and social services. It sparked what is now referred to as the disenchanted youth, and many of those disadvantaged turned to drugs. With the influx of cheap heroin into Scotland at the time, it was inevitable that social services who relied on donations and volunteers like the Samaritans and the Salvation Army would grow rapidly. So while young Linda was fully qualified, Andrew was moving up. Linda and her partner Ian had ended their relationship quite some time before her and Andrew's affair, but they had continued living together as friends. It was Andrew's wife Christine who was kept in the dark about her husband's affair right across the street, and she wouldn't find out until the end of that year when Andrew came clean. Christine was devastated and didn't cope well. She begged Andrew to end it, and for a short while he agreed, but in secret he remained in both beds. Soon Linda purchased the cottage in Carnoustie and moved in, hoping one day Andrew would join her. Her wish would soon come true, with Andrew moving into the cottage 
and after two years they married. It was not an easy two years, and not everyone thought they would make it down the aisle. Their relationship was heated and intense, and at many stages along the way they separated. So finally, in November 1986, they wed, Andrew in full Highland regalia with a Bible in his hand. They honeymooned at Fernie Castle in Fife, perfectly centred between their little seaside cottage and the home of Linda's parents. Ten months after the wedding, besides Andrew, her new husband, Linda had only confided in her younger sister that she was expecting a baby, and it would be the news her parents had been waiting for, knowing how much being a mother meant to Linda, but they would never get the chance to hear the news from her that day. Instead, they would be told that their pregnant daughter was missing. When police went to speak to Andrew, he explained everything that had happened since he last saw Linda. Shortly after Linda had walked out, Andrew had taken a half-hour bus journey to Dundee's Strathmore Lodge, arriving at the Salvation Army residential home just after midday to hand in the essay to his study supervisor. He had then gone to his work at the Ann Street Children's Home, dropping in briefly telling his work friends he would see them out that night for the farewell party that was on. He then withdrew £150 from his bank account and went home. He was at the Carnoustie cottage when Linda's sister Sandra arrived around 3pm. She didn't know Linda had gone to their parents, but when Andrew explained that they had argued, she stayed with him as they sat out in the garden, assuming her sister would be back soon. At some stage later that afternoon, Andrew and Sandra went for tea at a local hotel and onto the doctor's clinic where Andrew asked if a prescription had been left for Linda and declined the offer of an appointment for her, saying that he believed she had plans. At 7pm with no signs of Linda, Sandra left and Andrew got ready for his night out. Shortly after 8pm, Andrew arrived back in Dundee at the popular bar The Celtic Club in Hilltown. He had arranged for a neighbour to drive him and return later to pick him up. He didn't drink much and he was waiting when his neighbour returned at 11pm to drive him back home. Andrew mentioned he was a little worried about Linda not being home yet and when he went inside she still wasn't there. And the next morning, as Andrew explained to police, he woke up and there was still no sign of Linda. He said he got up late and got the bus into Dundee again, this time going to Timpson's Shoes in Murraygate, where at 1pm he bought a pair of trainers for his teenage son's birthday. He had the receipt. The last couple of years had been very stressful for his son. One day, not long after Andrew had confessed to Christine that he was having an affair with Linda... Andrew and his son, who was 11 at the time, had spent an afternoon together going to the cinema. Andrew, who had begun living in a flat in Dundee by then, was to drop his son back home to his ex-wife Christine's place in Brotty Ferry. But when they arrived at the house, they couldn't get in, and there was no sign of Christine. It seemed like she was in, but she wasn't answering the door. Andrew knocked on the neighbours looking for a spare key, and it was Ian, Linda's ex, that had one. When they finally got inside, they found Christine hanging from the rafters by a TV cable. It had been a hard two years since. That Saturday evening, when Andrew picked up the phone to call the police, no one had seen or heard from Linda in almost two days. With the understanding that the couple had argued and that Linda had left in her own car with a bag of clothes and her dog, police hoped that the newly pregnant Linda would show up most likely to her sister's or to her parents' place. But the following morning, almost 48 hours since Andrew had seen her, 
Tayside Police got an unexpected phone call. Four and a half hours away in Manchester, England, police had found a car registered to a Linda Hunter of Carnoustie. The car, near Manchester Piccadilly Station, had been broken into and looked abandoned after being parked on a double yellow line. A parking ticket on the windscreen issued at 9am that morning. Police began to suspect that something wasn't right. As they understood, Linda was the sort of woman who would go to her family for help. And being pregnant and unwell, she was unlikely to drive almost five hours to Manchester. Possibly her car had been stolen, but where was Linda and where was Shep? Police already had their doubts about Andrew's story. He had appeared concerned, but he was far from distraught at the news Linda's car had been found. Andrew was cold. Something wasn't right. Linda's family, on the other hand, were devastated and they didn't believe Linda would have driven to Manchester. They then disclosed to police that things hadn't been rosy in Andrew and Linda's marriage. In fact, their relationship had never been a positive one right from the start. He had been known to be aggressive towards her on numerous occasions. Sandra told police that the week before her sister disappeared, the two spoke on the phone and discussed at length the problems in Linda's marriage. Andrew wasn't happy about the baby and they were fighting again. Andrew had been distant for a long while. In fact, there was a time before they got married that some doubted they would stay together at all. Shortly after Christine had died, things had changed in their relationship. Andrew was living in the flat in Dundee, but for a while he moved back into the home he shared with Christine and he and Linda's relationship began to cool off. Also before Christine's death, while he was seeing Linda, he had also had a second affair, this time with a young woman from work that had lasted around a month. Neither his lover Linda or his wife Christine knew. A little more digging by the police and a whole series of relationships and affairs opened up. Andrew had recently resumed a relationship he'd had with a man over ten years prior from his hometown. He'd also used regular sex workers that he saw on rotation, one of which he was seeing often, even bringing her home to the cottage when Linda wasn't around. She was a 22-year-old he had met through his social work. She had a serious drug problem and he was willing to give her money. Linda's family revealed that there had been several incidents of serious domestic violence even before the couple were married. There had been an incident Linda had revealed to them just days after Christine's death. The couple were arguing in a public car park when he had assaulted her. She had snapped at him, saying there was no need for him to attend Christine's funeral. Andrew had also struck Linda in the face with an umbrella, and then on another occasion he threw her out of the house, twisting her arm so badly she needed to go to A&E. These serious acts of violence, another ending up with Linda calling the police, never ended up with any charges filed. But they did come to a head before they were married. When Andrew was hospitalised for four months in a psychiatric facility after revealing his thoughts of suicide. It wouldn't be long before Linda too fell deeper into her own depression. She struggled to deal with Andrew's behaviour, but she couldn't stay away from him. She overdosed on sleeping tablets, accidentally she would say, and she would spend a week herself in hospital. So when things began to look like they were on the up and the couple announced their wedding plans, Linda's family felt relief that they had finally sorted out their relationship. All this just fueled the suspicions of the police. The good-natured salvationist, as Andrew presented himself to police, had fast become their number one suspect. 
The only problem was that they had no idea what had happened to Linda, and there was also no sign of Shep. The other problem was that Andrew's alibi was solid. He was able to account for himself for most of the time up until he reported her missing. But on the other hand, it didn't seem impossible that he could make the almost 10-hour round trip to Manchester and kill his wife. It just felt unlikely. That December, three and a half months after Linda disappeared, with no further movement on the case, it was featured on Crime Watch. It was the first time in the show's history that a Scottish case would appear and became a topic of conversation across the whole of Scotland. After the show aired, the police received a tidal wave of phone calls. Someone phoned in to say that on the day Linda went missing, the Friday, they'd seen a car matching the description of Linda's near Fernie Castle, driven by a man with a woman in the passenger seat who looked as though she was extremely distressed. The man driving... They believed he was Andrew Hunter, but according to Andrew, Linda left the house with Shep, alone. Then police announced to the public that a dog matching Shep's description had been seen in the area of St Michael's, a few miles away from Fernie Castle. Police and the family were on edge. That was right near where the couple had honeymooned, and it was also en route to Linda's parents' place, where she was apparently heading to that day. It just seemed too coincidental. A taxi driver from Edinburgh then came forward to say that at 1.20am on the Saturday morning, 13 hours after Linda left the house and just over two hours after Andrew's neighbour had picked him up at the bar and dropped him at home in Carnoustie, the man had seen a white Vauxhall near the 4th Road Bridge. Two men were changing its tyre. The taxi driver couldn't explain why he found this suspicious, but he did and he wrote down the licence plate. When police cross-checked it, they found it matched Linda's registration, bar one number. The fourth bridge was en route to England. Police now believed that when Andrew came home from the bar, having not drunk much at all, he had not gone to bed as he claimed, he drove to England. He drove to Manchester to dump the car and make it look like it was Linda. He must have had Linda's car kept somewhere, but where he had kept it, they didn't know. When chasing up the lead on the sighting of Shep, detectives discovered that a dog matching Shep's description had been picked up. He wasn't wearing a collar, so he was put down by authorities after a week. During a search of the hunter's cottage, police had found Shep's dog collar. It had two address tags on it, one for the cottage and one for Linda's parents' home in Fife. According to her family, Shep never left the house without his collar and now, with the report of the dog having been found without a collar, detectives were sure Andrew had dumped him and carelessly taken the collar home. A full-scale search with over 60 officers and dog teams went out to the areas around St Michael's and near Fernie Castle to look for Linda. Andrew, forever assuring police he was oblivious to what had happened to Linda, also joined the search. After three days and no sign of Linda, the search was called off. The next two months were agony for the family, with no further information on Linda and the police no closer to finding her, dead or alive. On the 11th of February 1988, almost six months after Linda disappeared, a man was walking his dog in Melville Woods in Lady Bank, just off the main road between Dundee and Fife. This area was a couple of miles south of Fernie Castle where the witness saw Linda distressed in a car driven by a man who looked like Andrew and around five miles west of where Shep was found. 
About 30 metres from the road in a dense group of bushes, the man and his dog came across the decomposed body of a woman with what appeared to be a dog lead tied around her neck. There was no doubt in the detectives' minds that it was the body of Linda Hunter. For many Dundee locals, memories came flooding back from eight years earlier when 20-year-old Elizabeth McCabe, a trainee nurse from Dundee, went missing after a night out. Two weeks later, her body was found in Templeton Woods, five miles northeast of Dundee Centre. The 1979 murder rocked Dundee to its core and sparked one of the biggest manhunts in history. Eleven months later, with Elizabeth's murder still unsolved, Dundee was hit with the possibility that a serial killer was at large when the body of 18-year-old Carol Lannan was found, 75 feet from where Elizabeth was found. The two cases were never officially linked, but at the same time never discounted as being committed by the same person either. Over the years, police have looked at Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and Angus Sinclair, the World's End pub murderers, having links to the Templeton Woods murders. Even Northern California's Zodiac Killer has been brought up. In 2007, Vincent Simpson was tried and acquitted for Elizabeth's murder. Still to this day, no one has been convicted for either murder. At the time of the discovery of Linda's body, seven years later in 1987, it was clear the details of her disappearance and murder were vastly different, and police were focusing in on someone they were sure was responsible. When police informed Andrew that Linda's body had been located, he was with his regular sex worker. In a twist of fate, 24 hours later she died of an apparent drug overdose. Her friend would claim she took her own life. She couldn't live with the guilt of having joked to Andrew months earlier that he should kill his wife. But the truth of this remains a mystery. The only thing that the police knew was that within three years, three women, two of them wives and one a lover, had all died. Four days later, Andrew spoke to the media. He requested that he be photographed on his best side. He stated that he was aware of all the speculation and he understood that because he was the last person to see her alive, then naturally the police would need to rule him out. He stated he had nothing to hide. To him, Linda being murdered hadn't even sunk in and that the death of his first wife had also been a terrible shock. No one was buying it. While police retraced all Andrew's apparent steps, they also went over his alibis and cross-referenced it with all known times and places of the car and the body. There were two things they were aiming to find out. Was it possible for Andrew to depart the cottage mid-morning that Friday with Linda, kill her and dump her in the wood and make it back to Dundee in time to walk into the Salvation Army's Strathmore Lodge to hand in his essay just after midday, as if nothing had happened? And... Could he have come home from the bar that Friday night at 11pm, get back to where he had hidden the car and driven to Manchester throughout the night, being seen changing the wheel near the bridge, dump the car and return to Dundee on a train from Piccadilly, making it to the shoe shop to purchase the trainers just after 1pm? They believed that earlier that morning of Friday August 21st, after Linda, struggling with morning sickness, and her husband arrived home from the pharmacy and doctors, she didn't leave alone at all. They firmly believed that Andrew went with her, convincing her that he would drive her to her parents, but instead of getting her there safely, 
An argument broke out en route and he pulled the car over to a quiet spot and murdered his upset, pregnant wife, strangling her with Shep's lead. All within an hour of leaving the cottage and within a couple of miles of where they had spent their first night of marriage at Fernie Castle. Detectives found that when Andrew walked through the doors of Strathmore Lodge, essay in hand just after midday, he was visibly sweaty, something he openly blamed on being forced to catch the bus. But in fact, they believed it completely possible that in the hour and a half prior, he had driven with Linda in her car towards Fife, arguing with her, strangling her with her own dog's lead, dumping her in the wood. Then, on the way back to Dundee, he removed Shep's collar so he couldn't be identified and dumped him from the car. Detectives then believed that Andrew went back into Dundee in the car, hid the vehicle somewhere in the city before going to his place of work, as if his morning had been like every other. Continuing to chase the trail of his alibi and prove it wrong, detectives then drove through the night from the Carnoustie Cottage to Piccadilly Station in Manchester, taking every route possible. They waited for the early morning train and caught it back to Dundee, and walked to the shoe store. They found it perfectly possible, and they believed that he had deliberately planned the purchases and the money withdrawal so as to back up his alibis. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. By the time Crime Watch would release another update segment on the murder of Linda Hunter, seven weeks after the discovery of her body, police had interviewed around 5,000 people and compiled over 1,200 witness statements. And they had gathered enough evidence to make their arrest. Andrew Hunter was arrested and charged with strangling his wife Linda with a ligature. His trial, which drew the biggest crowds of any trial in Dundee for 35 years, 
took place in July 1988 at the High Court in Dundee before Lord Brand and a jury of eight women and seven men. Crowds lined up for hours each morning with sandwiches and flasks of tea. If they didn't make it into the morning court session, they waited all day until the afternoon session opened. Those who made it in would witness Dundee's notorious wife-killer plead not guilty to the charges. He denied that on August 21, 1987, the car owned by his wife was being driven by him. He denied that he assaulted his wife and that he had behaved aggressively towards her for a sustained period, constantly threatening her. He denied striking her across the head with his hand before struggling with her and ultimately strangling her. His defence centred around the various people and places he was during that day and the day that followed. When the prosecution presented their case, the jury heard that on the night Andrew Hunter fled Dundee in his wife's car, he was headed for England to abandon the vehicle as if stolen. While driving, he was wearing a woman's blonde wig, something, they argued, was not unusual for him to do. When he punctured the car's tyre on the roundabout near Forth Road Bridge, he discarded the wig before accepting the help of a passing van driver. This was the two men the eyewitness who had phoned Crime Watch had seen. They also heard that the day after he had murdered Linda, he casually purchased a pair of trainers for his son as part of his planned alibi. He then got a haircut before going home and reporting his wife of less than a year missing. The prosecution's witness, a sex worker who regularly saw Andrew, painted a picture of a man obsessed with sex and bored with his wife. She told the court that after meeting with Andrew at his cottage, he told her his new wife was dead and he was not referring to his first wife, Christine. The jury heard that after killing Linda, Andrew Hunter spent the afternoon with her sister, keeping up the charade that he had no idea where she was, entertaining her with tea and having her accompany him on errands around town in an attempt to build his alibi. When the dog collar evidence was presented, Andrew Hunter was on the witness stand. The prosecutor Peter Fraser QC, after presenting the fact that Shep's dog collar, the one that would never normally be removed from the dog, was found in the laundry basket during a search of the cottage, spoke directly to Andrew Hunter and said, If the collar was found in your house subsequently, there is only one remaining conclusion to be drawn and that is that you were present with your wife in the car, and if you are present in the car, you're exclusively responsible for your wife's death. Andrew Hunter didn't respond. After 11 days, and after just two hours of deliberations, Andrew Hunter was found guilty of the murder of his wife Linda. When Lord Brand delivered Andrew's sentence, he said, You are an evil man of exceptional depravity. The sentence of the court is that you be imprisoned for life. The court would hear from Andrew again less than a year later when he appealed his sentence. His appeal was denied. Five years into his life sentence, Andrew Hunter died of a heart attack in Perth Prison. I'm Catherine Kelly, host of Crime and Investigation's brand new true crime TV series, Murder Town. Join me next Monday at 9pm as I return to my hometown of Barnsley, where we investigate the shocking murder of two elderly gentlemen. For more information on the series, head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk and let us know your thoughts by searching for Crime and Investigation on social media or using hashtag MurderTown.
The Murder Town podcast is hosted by Benjamin Fitton, written by Anna Priestland, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by James Colopy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.